Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AZ96, Environment and Environmentalism, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 206, October 18, 1989. This evening, Otto, Scott, and myself are going to discuss the environment and environmentalism, a very important subject today, especially inasmuch as environmentalism is becoming the religion for many people. Otto, would you like to introduce the subject generally? Well, I think your closing statement, brief as it was, summarized uh, the situation to a great extent when you said environmentalism has become a religion for many. The main people who seem to have rushed into environmentalism are those who were formerly against the Vietnam War, were formerly socialists, in some cases communists, in many cases radical, people who have seen their old beliefs beginning to fall apart in the USSR and in Red China and places like that where the socialist rationale no longer survives and have rushed into the idea of a clean and perfect environment. They have overlooked, they overlooked the fact that industrial countries are the most pollution-free countries in the world and that primitive societies are the most polluted. They don't know that the American Indian was a grave polluter who used to move his campsite only when it became too filthy to endure, who used to burn forests in order to get the game, just as the primitives of the rainforest are burning the forest to get the game in that part of the world. This is a primitive phenomenon. And, by the way, the forests replenish themselves, as we were told by a, a foresty expert. The environmentalists, the first time around, promoted this their hysteria through Congress in the early 70s at a time when the United States was the largest manufacturing power in the world. The peak, our peak, was 1968 when we produced a third of all the manufactured goods in the world. The Clean Air Act, the first Clean Air Act was promoted through Congress. Senator Muskie was one of the leading proponents mm -hmm. If it had been applied with the rigor which the law called for, it would have probably closed down the United States. There were over 400 chemicals that were supposed to be monitored from factory to use. In the final analysis, only about four were actually followed because we didn't have the bureaucracy or the ability to do all the things that the law demanded. But because the courts were beginning to tilt as they had in New Deal days against the corporations and against the commercial sector, because Congress had enacted these horrible laws, our heavy industries began to melt. I have a book at home called And the Wolf Finally Came. 
It's about the steel industry. They don't have to worry about smog in Pittsburgh anymore because there are no jobs. The factories are gone. They're closed. Ninety percent of our steel industry has gone into smoke. It's just vanished. Ten percent is still alive and profitable, and the newspapers keep telling us steel is making money again. From one-third of all the manufactured goods in the world, we fell now to 15% in a period of 20 years. The second wave of environmental laws, command and control laws, probably will complete the task. I talked earlier today to a department head in the National Association of Manufacturers in Washington, D.C. I told her that a friend of ours who is a member of the, former member of the Air Quality Control Board in L.A. said that if the new presidential Complete Clean Air Act is, is put together the way they threaten, it will close down Southern California, which is the largest industrial complex we have left in the country. And she said, her name is Teresa Pugh, she said, they want to do that, Mr. Scott. They have told us from Southern California, the environmentalists have told us that they want to stop all industrial growth in the area. In the face of all the immigrants into that area, they want to put them all out of work. I said, at this rate, the only place that would please a true environmentalist would be a graveyard where none of the people residing there would be polluting any longer and they would be providing room for the worms and the birds and the trees and the grass and so forth. She said, I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, when Lenin accomplished the Russian Revolution... He expected utopia to be born. All you had to do was to eliminate the capitalists, the kings, the nobility, and a marvelous uh, new order would arise automatically, spontaneously, and the world would be a new garden of Eden. That blind mentality still prevails because the environmentalist idea is that if we get rid of industry, if we get rid of everything that pollutes, and the farmers now are being seen as polluters. After all, if you plow, dust gets in the air. If you have to burn off a field, smoke gets in the air. Somehow, this new paradise will emerge when they kill off industry and agriculture. Well, do you remember World Watch, the World Watch Institute? Mm -hmm. They put out a book about five or six years ago, seven or eight years ago, on what the environment should be like. We would use windmills and water wheels. We would stop using uh, fuel-powered airplanes. We would use dirigibles and perhaps sailing ships in the sky. Mm-hmm. We would go back to sailing ships on the high seas. We would stop using automobiles altogether. We would use bicycles. We would get out of cities altogether, and we would have nothing but crafts, 
Farming would be done with what they call biomass, which is humus and animal dung. And all residences would be in a small area with perhaps a thousand people and small paths in between houses which would all be the same. And bicycles would be sufficient. International travel and travel in general would no longer be necessary because all the world would be the same. The idea would be that our living standard would adjust to the living standard of all other people so that from one end of the world to the other, you would have the same kind of villages, the same kind of bicycles, the same kind of agriculture, and the same level. Yes, but it is interesting in Africa where you have people trying to create this brave new world. They live in specially created complexes with air conditioning, refrigeration, television, and all the amenities of life that they feel are bad for people. Well, the Soviets did for a while, you know, set up that sort of society. The elite had its own special stores. They still do. They still do. Their own special dachas, mm -hmm. their own special rooms, their own special apartments, their own special hospitals, their own special clothes, which in the aggregate are no better than what we have. But the thing that makes them precious is that the rest of the Russians don't have it. Mm -hmm. How often have you seen a fellow's face fall in chagrin when you got something that he had? <laughs> mm-hmm. Possessions seem much more precious when they are rare. Mm -hmm. But that's the other side of the coin. The thing that interests me is the hatred that emerges with these people who love the environment. Now, technically speaking, it started as an official campaign with Rachel Carson in her book, The Silent Spring. She was a wonderful writer. Mm -hmm. I read several of her books, and they're brilliant. But Silent Spring, she wrote when she was dying of cancer, and she knew she was dying of cancer. And she was in that state where she was dying, the whole world was dying. I think she saw death all around. And apparently she had no faith to sustain her in no. this ordeal. So therefore she projected this fantasy of a New England with no birds and talked about what terrible thing that would be. And then right after that, Ralph Nader, that wonderful man, who was on the payroll of Senator Ribicoff of Connecticut. Senator Ribicoff had an ambition. He wanted to be the Vice President of the United States. And he chose automobile, or traffic safety rather, highway safety as one of his great topics. And Ralph Nader, while he was on the payroll, wrote a book. He got off the payroll before the book appeared. He since has said, I believe, that he didn't write it on Senator's time. But at any rate, it was a, an amusing event because in the final analysis, Mr. Nader became more famous than Senator Ribicoff. In mm -hmm. fact, Senator Ribicoff dropped into the shadows and finally evaporated altogether. But Mr. Nader went on to become a great hero. He's the one who gave us our seatbelts. A number of people have died because of those seatbelts because they couldn't get out of the way of an oncoming train in time or an oncoming car. 
Between Rachel Carson and Mr. Nader, we had a case here where chemicals were manufactured to poison the world and automobiles were deliberately made in order to kill people. Now, that sort of reasoning actually captured the greatest minds in the United States mm -hmm. on the bench and in Congress and in, certainly in newspaper offices. When I was working on the San Diego Union as an editorial writer, one of my colleagues used to write editorial, uh, environmental editorials with a cigarette dangling from his lips. And I said one day, how did you get to the office? He said, I drove in. I said, what? How dare you drive in and write against automobile pollution? He said, well, it's a lot more convenient. Mm -hmm. And I said, why don't you give up cigarettes? He said, I like them. Well, I said, why do you write this tripe? He said, the readers like it. Yes, well, uh, that brings up a very important point. Uh, one of our fellowship, Tim Vaughn, uh, handed me an article today on uh, Bible translations, which we will have in the report sometime late winter, early spring. And, uh, of course, the problem in Bible translations is that people are governed now not by God but by their environment. So the critical factor is how will this go over with the people? Now that's a poor way to translate a Bible. But th uh, there are theories of missions called contextualization. The gospel has to be tailored to the context. And Tim uh, cites in his article a devastating instance in Papua, where he worked. A Bible translator rendered the New Testament passage, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Mm -hmm. Behold the pig of God. Because, he said, in Papua they don't know anything about lambs. They don't have them, but they have pigs. Nothing about educating people up to God's word. No, you bring the word of God down to the level of the people. Why bother to convert them? Now, that's the kind of blasphemous thing that environmentalism leads to. It destroys people because it's in terms of uh, Cornelius Van Til's magnificent uh, phrase, integration downward into the void. Well, yes. I read a clipping recently, a woman who was taking part in a class action suit against a refinery. She said, my husband died of leukemia, and there's a man across the street, one of our neighbors, who is dying of leukemia and she said I think it's because of where we're living so close to this refinery now the refinery has employed thousands of men over the years 60 years it's employed tens of thousands I guess I don't know exactly very few of them have died of leukemia no more than normal and I read that read that poor woman and I 
felt sorry for, but I also thought, now here this is primitivism. Mm -hmm. Primitive people think when there's a death in the family, it's due to the malignant curse of an enemy. And in this case, the woman thought it was due to that evil refinery down there, which was supporting the whole region. Mm -hmm. It paid the taxes which made the sewer system that she was taking advantage of. After all, she pollutes, we all pollute. That's the reason we have flush toilets. And I thought they have substituted corporations and industry for mm -hmm. the devil. Yes. The communists have reached a greater audience through the environment than they ever reached through communism. Mm -hmm suddenly they've turned the American people against their own livelihoods. Yes. And this isn't to say that industry pollutes deliberately, but it is to say that as you proceed, you don't do things the same way in 1989 as you did in 1929 because you get better and better. Uh, the famous Love Canal case turned out to be absolute hoax. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, Lake Erie was supposed to have nothing in it but dead fish. That's not true. Another case was the cranberries. Remember the cranberries? Yes. And the apples. And the apples. And then the mercury in fish. And they yes. discovered that there's been mercury in fish for thousands of years. Yes. So, okay, we'll forget about that and go on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you can never run out. And in the meantime, we are setting up, through Congress, a series of laws. Everything that moves is capable of polluting. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, everything that moves will have to be controlled. As Gorbachev decentralizes, we are centralizing beyond anything they ever dreamed of. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're doing it in the name of saving man and saving the environment. You referred earlier to so-called primitive man and their treatment of the environment. Slash and Byrne did describe it. Uh, one of the first things I learned when I went on the Indian reservation was that the Indians did not enjoying, enjoy fishing just to catch say a few fish. The only time they were interested in fishing was in the spring run when fish were spawning, when you could go out and net hundreds of them. Then they were interested. But if it meant out, uh, going out and catching a handful of trout uh, the hard way, that didn't appeal to them. And this is the way they'd always hunted. Uh, they had burned to g drive uh, deer or whatever else it was towards them. Uh, they were not mindful of the environment. They're not mindful of the future. No. A primitive, primitive cultures do not think of the future. That's right. And it is only Christian civilization that has been mindful of the future and has been protective of the, of the environment. If in some instances you have areas of the world where primitive peoples have lived and they have not destroyed the environment, 
It's only because they didn't have the capacity to do anything like that. Do you know the first great war of Europe after the fall of Rome was to clear the forests and tame the wild animals and convert the savage tribes of Europe. Yes, and what we forget is that there were vast areas of Europe that were not habitable, that were deserts or were rocky wastelands. And it was Christian monks especially that uh, were given these lands because they knew the monks would go in there and level the land, they would bring in water, they would change the environment and make it habitable. And it was monks again that first started the construction of the dikes in the Netherlands so that the Christian realms became productive, fertile, and prosperous in a way that no other part of the world could be in those days. Well, there's somebody who's written a book recently called How Europe Got Rich. The Christian civilization did not have any great experts from China to come and tell them how to do things. Mm -hmm. There was no group of international bankers who sent money into Europe to capitalize their governments or their people. There was no other civilization that came and gave lessons. The Chinese inventions were held exclusively to China. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know how silk was smuggled out of yes. China by a woman who had discovered the secret of how it was made because mm -hmm. the Chinese kept all these things to themselves. Every civilization that we know of, with the exception of the Christian, has always kept all its own benefits and all its own advantages to itself. Mm -hmm. The Christian civilization is the only one that spread these things around the world. Yes. And to take care of the resources of the earth is a Christian idea. And yet we find the heirs of Christendom shrieking to the heavens, demanding that everyone be put under an overseer, lest he molest the soil. Yes. This yes. is a strange conclusion by an ignorant populace, which apparently has never been taught that the basis of wealth is all under the ground. I remember getting that lecture from Mr. Kennedy. He was a, he is, I think, still the director of Kerr-McGee and a senior vice president in one of the large investment banking firms in New York. He pinned me to the wall, so to speak, on this monologue. He said, everything we have comes from the earth, the food, the water, the crops, the minerals into which we process, the materials by which we build and construct. Mm -hmm. Everything. But you have to work to get it. Now, wasn't it you who told me recently? No, it was someone else who has a friend who has a gold mine who said if the President's Clean Air Act goes through, we won't be able to mine anymore. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a refinery operator recently I said, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm pretty close to retirement. And he said, I just pray at night that the 
we find he doesn't have an accident between now and my retirement because he said, you know, they're criminalizing accidents. Mm -hmm. If we have an accident, he said they're going to treat us as criminals. Well, the San Joaquin Valley of California is the most fertile area in the world together with the Nile Valley, and the San Joaquin Valley is the most productive area. If you shut down California agriculture by a strike, within a week there would be serious food shortages and rationing from coast to coast. That's how productive California is. And it's Great Central Valley as well as the Coachella and the Imperial Valleys are the reason for California's preeminence in agriculture. And yet I can remember back in the 20s and 30s when a good deal of the valley was alkali flats, when it would not even grow weeds, but it has progressively over the years been subjugated. Now, in the area of Tulare County, some of that uh, was due to some of the early settlers, and it brought uh, alkali up to the surface. But in a good deal of it, it was because the waters out of the Sierras would come and stand there endlessly, and it brought the alkali to the surface. You'd look at the land as you drove along in the 20s and 30s, and it was white, white with alkali. Now we're helping feed the world. Well, that's the kind of productivity that Christianity has brought to every country that remade the face of Europe and has remade this country. I remember driving in Germany where the trees are all standing at attention. Mm -hmm. Like so many soldiers, you never saw anything like it. Even the trees in Germany are regulated. And it's amazing. And you know they're all planted. They are a product, uh, the black forest. They've all been made by man. Of Luther. Yes. Luther's work, the Lutherans. The Lutherans. Re revived the forests of Germany. Well, do you remember, Tim this morning gave me some papers. One yes. was a description from 1795 of Spanish mariners going along the coast of California commenting upon the great slicks of oil that were floating on the surface. Yes. And the tar balls on the sand. Yes. And the same thing again in 1895. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the cracks in the ocean floor from which the oil seeps upward along the Pacific coast has been noted by every explorer through the centuries. But it wasn't until the oil companies came out to tap that oil that suddenly the environmentalists came to protect the seagulls. Yes. And the risk of that type of continuing oil pollution all over the coastal areas has been dramatically diminished and almost abolished by the oil drilling. Now that oil is productive. It's not endlessly polluting the ocean. But you know that at one point they were going to pass a regulation forbidding the tankers to go in to Alaska and California. Mm -hmm. And then they suddenly realized that without the tankers, they wouldn't have any automobiles to drive to the rally to demonstrate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Well, it's amazing the stupidity. This is Luddite, Luddites. Luddites is the term. These are modern Luddites, the machinery sh uh, smashers. Yes. When the Industrial Revolution was born, there were people who saw the hope of mankind is destroying the Industrial Revolution. The tragedy of the linotype operators. Yes. Who were put out of work by new developments and types. So yes. This is the old story. Yes. Otto, you mentioned the Luddites, and I'd like to go back to that because I think it's a very important aspect of this entire uh, question. In 18th century England, the poverty was intense. There were a great many people who risked hanging routinely and daily to steal a loaf of bread, for which you could hang and sometimes did hang. These were children sometimes, 10, 12-year-old boys and girls who were starving and would steal something risking hanging. Well, when the Industrial Revolution came along, it changed that situation. We are told a great deal, both by the Marxists and the House of Lords and with their investigations of the uh, mines and the mills of uh, children working in the mines and working in the mills, what they don't tell us is that before those jobs came along, which those children were glad to get, they were starving and they were ready to hang for a bit of food. The tremendous alteration of the face of Europe as a result of the Industrial Revolution is no longer taught in schools so that no one knows of the significance of it among the younger generation. Well, as a result, we have the same kind of impulse as the Luddites. The propaganda, the newspapers of the day, played heavily on the sins of the mill owners and the mine owners, as though they represented the devils of their time. And they were able to arouse common people like the Luddites who didn't know what was true 40 and 50 years ago to the point where they were ready to destroy the machine. In France, they were called the saboteurs, sabot, wooden shoe. They were throwing their wooden shoes in the machinery to destroy them as though these machines instead of creating jobs, it robbed them of it. People can be blinded to their own self-interest and to what's before them. Well, today we have these environmentalists, the Luddites of our time, again the intellectuals and the snobs, and mindless people who follow them, ready to destroy everything that has made our civilization under the illusion that these things which produce our wealth are somehow the great evil. Well, the Industrial Revolution lifted the living standards of the entire globe to unprecedented, undreamable levels. 
but from the moment the Industrial Revolution began there was a whispering campaign from the French Revolution which whispered that the riches were robbing the poor you got rich by robbing people who didn't have anything <coughs> they didn't say follow us and I'll make you rich they said follow us and we'll stop anybody else from getting rich mm. and everywhere that industrialization moved the real reason why slavery was eliminated was industrialization mm -hmm. it was cheaper to pay a man for his labor than it was to support him and his whole family all his life from the cradle to the grave Yes. so therefore slaves became uneconomic industrialization removed slavery from the world it gave the individual an independence he didn't have before upon the lord upon the master upon the owner because with the money he could make himself independent and he in turn could become a, a businessman or whatever but everywhere that the fruits of industrialization spread you might say the fruits of christianity because this came from the Puritans. It came mm -hmm. from the Reformation. It didn't come from the Latin countries. It came from the Nordic and the Northern countries. Everywhere that it went, there was a whispering campaign that followed it. And our intellectuals fell for this just as much as the intellectuals of France and Germany and England. Emerson hated the rising of the new men because he, with his long tradition, his aristocratic position in New England was being outclassed by the new millionaires, the factory owners, the textile mill owners, and so forth. And in the long run, the whispering campaign became louder than the defensive campaign of the capitalists. And finally, it outshouted even the results. I mean, we have the phenomenon of the fellow with the long hair and electric guitar plugging it in before he sings his protest song against pollution. Mm -hmm. Well, an important aspect of this, whether it's in the mentality of the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or Karl Marx or the Luddites or the saboteurs, has been a false concept of wealth. Their view is that wealth is something that is static. There's only so much there. They've got it. You haven't got it. In order to get wealthy, you have to take it from them. Yes. Whereas wealth is not a static fact. It is an aspect of work and productivity. The untapped resources of the earth that we haven't yet begun to develop well, are the well, source of wealth for the future, the, just as those we've tapped thus far have made us wealthy. The whole interior of South America is unexplored and untapped. Mm -hmm. I've seen mountains on the west coast that are so heavy with minerals that not a single blade of grass will grow on them. Yes, uh, today at our staff breakfast, Tim Vaughn was telling us an amusing instance of environmentalist thinking. The destruction of the forests in Papua. How, uh, according to the figures, there should be 
no forests left in Papua because when you say this much was destroyed in the late 17th century, the early 18th and so on to the present, they're gone. But they're there as much as they ever were because it's a renewable resource. Yes, it is a renewable resource. The whole world is filled with renewable resources. And the whole earth is a bundle of resources that we haven't tapped. A giant ball of all kinds of resources. I read an article not too long ago about the comet that almost hit the earth. Recall it? Yes. Not too long ago. Yes. I think it was only a year or so ago. A comet that came within... A little longer. Maybe a little longer. It came within a few hundred thousand miles (laughs) of the earth. Or was it a few million? uh, um, I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) But at any rate, there was a speculation upon what would happen if it hit New York. Well, if it hit New York, according to the writers... It would have been, I don't know how many unimaginable times larger than a nuclear bomb. It would have devastated an area of hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles. And I couldn't help but think about the time that the top of Krakatoa went off. Yes. And the explosion was heard around the earth. And the sky was colored for years. Darkened. Hard to grow vegetables because the sun wouldn't shine through that. And the environmentalists have no idea of this force of nature. They have no idea of the destructiveness of nature. Unlike Dorothy, they've never been bitten by a rattlesnake. (laughs) Unlike me, they've never been in a heavy storm at sea. Mm -hmm. They have never understood that this earth is cursed. And that it contains poisons, it contains wild and vicious animals and reptiles and insects. It contains all kinds of things. When I was a boy, when you were a boy, goiters were common, remember? Mm -hmm. And that came from drinking untreated well water. Mm -hmm. Tapeworms were common. Imagine, you never hear of a tapeworm anymore. Diphtheria carried one of my aunts away. Pneumonia carried almost everyone away. It was known as the old man's friend. Mm -hmm. There were all kinds of illnesses that carried people away. Death, we knew. We saw him when we were children. We knew children who died. It wasn't a tragedy. It was part of life. And here we live now like the the people in the dream world. I saw a statement the other day by a doctor who said, if pollution is as bad as it supposedly has become in recent years, and if medical practice is as bad as they claim it is, why has life expectancy from 1900 to the present gone up from 46 to something like 70 or so. I've forgotten exactly. Over 70. Yes. I think 73 or 4 for men Mm -hmm. and early 80s for women. Mm -hmm. And Uh, I talked to the director of a funeral parlor. Now that's sexual discrimination. We should do something about that. I talked to the director of a funeral (laughs) parlor about that once and he said they work us to death. (laughs) 
No, I, I think we've been ought to do something, Otto, about this sexual discrimination. Women last longer. They last Isn't longer. right. Well, they don't enjoy it as much, so that's <laughs> we'll put it on that basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Luddites have a new religion, and they have a false concept of life and of nature. You mentioned Dorothy's rattlesnake bite. The thing that uh, was very interesting to me was how many people had no idea how serious a rattlesnake bite is or that it can kill or what kind of damage it can do because even doctors usually protect us from the full implications of things like this. I think they have a an idea that or perhaps it's that doctors now see an awful lot of softness in people. Yes. That people not being as acquainted with the grim facts of life that I just referred to. Yes. Take the idea that any death is a tragedy. And it isn't. Mm-hmm. Every, we, we, are, we all owe God a death, Shakespeare mm-hmm. said, and he was quite right. And now... Apparently, the physicians are discovering that you can't tell people the truth. They fall apart. Yes. Or they act very strange. Or they think it's your fault. They want to sue you for malpractice. Mm-hmm. You, I noticed that on Crossfire this afternoon, on discussing the San Francisco earthquake, Mr. Kinsley was trying to find some culprits. Uh, he was saying that perhaps the road wasn't properly constructed that collapsed and uh, buildings weren't properly built that uh, collapsed and so forth. I mean, he seemed to think that one is really can really make yourself safe from an earthquake. Well, of course, if you get a really big earthquake, nothing is safe. Managra went down in five minutes. Yes. This uh, matter that you referred to of how people are insulated against uh, knowing the tragedies and griefs of life. A very vivid uh, episode of that occurred, oh, in the early 50s. I had the funeral of a woman who was uh, well into her 80s. And uh, she and her husband both had an unusual background in that each, and I've forgotten what it was, they came from some part of the West, were the sole survivors of their families in some kind of disaster that had taken place. And this would have put it back into the 80s. As a result, they had grown up they married each other. They'd lived all these years. They had children and grandchildren so that there were about 75 or 80 people uh, who were present at that funeral who were all related. In all that time, there had never been a death. My never goodness. a death. How strange. And when this woman died, the grief was unimaginable. These people all fell apart. 
Hmm. I've never had a funeral before or since comparable hmm. to that. Hmm. They had been insulated from the fact of death. It was remote to them. Now, we are deliberately insulating ourselves from things like that. Well, if you open up a big medical directory and start to go through the, the common illnesses, you would be astonished at the number in which they say no known treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, you have uh, periodically objections to funerals, objections to the coffin being opened, objections to children being taken to the funeral of their grandmother or grandfather, uh, objections to everything that will allow people to face the fact that there is uh, death in the world. Uh, objections to reality. Objections to reality. I remember when my grandmother, one of my grandmother's younger brothers died, and they had a wake. It was an Irish wake down in uh, Astoria, New York. And the coffin was in the living room and all kinds of flowers and there was a rail beside the coffin where we could go and kneel down and say a prayer and the coffin was open and my grandmother walked over and uh, she prayed and then she stood up and she looked at him and she felt him and on the way home I said to her how could you do that oh she said when I was a girl in Ireland the women used to wash and dress the, sh the corpse oh, yes. and uh, she said why wasn't he thin and death was a familiar figure and is a very significant thing to know yes and to respect and I think Jonathan Edwards said something about it he said the ghastly appearance of death mm -hmm. is enough to instill respect into us but now of course we have the hospital where the baby is taken away from the mother and put in an antiseptic chamber and the doctors go around with masks on and the family is kept away and the husband is kept away and uh, there's been an intervention you might speak a sort of mechanization mm -hmm. of the American society an impersonalization and this has led to the illusions of the environmentalists that it's possible to have activity without risk it's possible to have labor without accidents. It's possible to have somebody else responsible for anything that goes wrong in your life. A lot of the environmental movement is based upon the idea to get a buck from the people with deep pockets. Yes. Not love of the environment, but a hope that by taking some company to court you can collect some damages. Mm -hmm. One woman in a telephone booth in a street corner in Akron, Ohio was hit by a car that jumped the curb and f ran into the booth. She sued the Firestone plant across the street. I said, why? The lawyer said it was the only person around there, the only, only thing around there that had any money. It's the truth. It's an actual case. Now she'd get the whole community to join the suit with her. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but
by eliminating Christians and industry, they will have their new Garden of Eden. They will have their graves. Yes. Because civilizations can come apart. Mm -hmm. They have the feeling that this is absolutely impregnable, that we cannot lose. This was Lyndon Johnson's illusion. He thought the United States could afford to fight a war thousands of miles away. Nobody has ever talked about the logistical marvel of moving 400,000 men into the jungles of Vietnam halfway around the world. Well, well, he yes. thought he could do all this and set up welfare at the same time. While we do all this and dream of a new Eden, we're turning our cities and communities into hell. Isn't that true? I shall never forget my experience in the 70s of meeting a black pastor from Central Africa. He was over here, uh, I forget on what kind of a trip, I think some churches who had missions there wanted people to see what a Christian leader there was like, a superior Christian leader, and he was that. He was largely self-educated, but he was a highly literate man, a very genuine Christian. And he had traveled from uh, the West Coast, Los Angeles, clear across the country, and it was in the South, that I met him. He had landed in New York, spent a little while there, and flown to L.A. Well, he told me in some horror, he said, the real barbarians are my people here in your cities. We don't have barbarians where I am in my country comparable to those that I have met in the cities. And he said, without Christ, whether they're black or white, they are barbarians, they're savages. And he said, I have never been frightened in Africa as I have been in the black areas of American cities. Well, it's quite a contrast because the concern for the environment is not reflected by concern for people. No. I mean, the country that has mandated abortion, that now talks about the fact that we've got too many old people and doesn't relate that to the fact that we've killed the babies. Mm -hmm. How do we expect to have young people if they're going to have these level a uh, million and a half abortions every year? Mm -hmm. uh, but there is no real compassion here. There is instead an argument that all forms of life are equally sacred. Mm -hmm. So we have people who now have snakes and hideous sorts of organisms as pets. Yes. We have uh, a worship of whales. Amazing. Amazing. One of the fathers of uh, all of this was Albert Schweitzer who was really a pantheist. He believed that the life of a worm, 
was sacred, almost on a level with human beings, if not an actual level. And he would go around picking up worms that had crawled onto a walk during a rainstorm. And uh, his idea of reverence for all life equally was idealized and lionized in his time, and he was regarded as one of the greatest of philosophers. Yes, and Gandhi's mother would not step upon an insect. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to refer in somewhat oblique ways to his reverence for life. He was the first of his sect to leave the shores of India, which was forbidden to the believers. And it's interesting that he was associated with all these wonderful ideas. He was against industry. He wanted India to return to the crafts and methods of a thousand years earlier, wanted it to reject everything from the West. You remember the spinning mm-hmm. wheels? Oh, and all yes. That? He went around in diapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and he left a heritage of murder and massacre. Yes. Yes. He left a sea of blood and is still idealized by the bubbleheads throughout the West. Did you read that little book, The Real Mahatma Gandhi? By Grenier? Yes. Yes. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> yes. Did you have a good bowel movement this morning, <laughs> sister? <laughs> really fantastic. He was... What the press can do with with talk about bricks without straw. These are people without brains. Yes. Yes. Well, our time is almost over. Are there any concluding statements on environmentalism that you'd like to I think if left unchecked and if given all the power by the government that the government is threatening to give it. The environmental movement will provide us with a depression that will curl our hair. And then I think both the politicians and the environmentalists will have to find a storm shelter someplace. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. We are grateful to those of you, by the way, who suggested this as a subject for us to discuss. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.